0: And welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. Pod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools, and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Jill Ringland. Jill's early career included stints at the University of California. Berkeley and Oxford University. She was CEO director and a fellow of SAMI Consulting at Strategy with a View to the Future from 2002 to 2017 with clients from the private, public and NGO sector globally from Mexico to Malaysia including the European Commission. From September 2017 until February 2020 she was a director at Ethical Reading which was set up to create a community of organisations in the Reading area who do the right thing by each other, the wider community, the environment and thrive in the process. She has a Bachelor of Science and a Master in Science degrees and is a fellow and was a council member of the British Computer Society. She was co-opted to the UK Science Research Council's Computing Science Committee, the UK's Economic and Social Research Council, and to three separate European Commission high-level expert groups on Foresight. She has over 100 publications and contributes globally to conferences and workshops. Her books on scenario planning and strategy are used at business schools, including Harvard. Her most recent published book, The Eighth One, with Patricia Lustig, is Megatrends and How to Survive Them, Preparing for 2032. Welcome to Future Pod Jill.
1: Thank you, Peter, for offering the interview. It's a great opportunity. Thank
0: you. Thanks, Jill. So question one, what is the Jill Ringland story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community?
1: Well, my Foresight story is about using Foresight rather than inventing it. And it's about using it in my role as ICL as a manager and then as a consultant and running a company. So what I'm going to try to bring out as I go through is how a manager, which is how I think of myself, a person who gets stuff done, mm. found that foresight was helpful, and then started to help other people use it. Yep. So uh, my background: I'm the eldest of five children, born with, within sound of Bow Bells uh, in London. So that makes me a Cockney. <laughs> Yeah. My father took a three-year secondment to the post office uh, telecoms in Melbourne when I was in my teens. And so I went to Methodist Ladies College, which, is, of course, is just round the corner from Swinburne. So I wonder if there's something in the air in the Melbourne suburb. <laughs> what do you think?
0: <laughs> I think there was something there, yes.
1: So came back to the UK and went to the University of Bristol to read physics. And physics is a super education because it's about models. It's about data. It's about connecting to the real world. It's about real people doing experiments and how error bars happen. And I just wish more people in government and politics and in the world at large had actually had that education because so much of our world is dependent on that thinking. And yet a lot of people are totally blind to it. Hmm. So physics, great education. As you said in your summary, I had a classic academic career going to Edinburgh, Newcastle, the University of California, Berkeley, Oxford. I was happily married to a great guy, world-class physicist. We had so many friends who were trying with marginal success to have two academic careers in the family because, of course, it's difficult to find two academic careers in the same place or even the same geography. Yeah. And I'd learned how to program computers doing my research on the theory of liquids. So I thought, I'm going to be a computer programmer. And that was a brilliant conclusion to come to because it was a really exciting time. I joined this small company, 30 people called Computer Analysts and Programmers. We grew it to 1,000 people, worked on projects like the Concord Fatigue Test and the first credit checking online program, designed an operating system. Flew into Calgary in a thunderstorm to give the keynote on data architecture, which was frightening. <laughs> I, I was, uh, oh yes, went back to Berkeley for a year and I wrote the American National Standard for tape headers. You may laugh, but it was important at the time.
0: Yeah, no.
1: And I was co-opted onto the Science Research Council's Computing Science Committee. And one of the other people on the committee was Ian Barron who is a serial entrepreneur, and he was about to start up Inmos, a semiconductor company. So he invited me to join him, and I did. And fascinating, I learned so much in a couple of years. But one of the things that I learned was that he was a mathematician, and he had a vision. But unfortunately, being a physicist, I looked at the practicality of implementing, and the technology was about several years, probably a decade, away from being available to actually implement his vision. So I jumped ship and I went and ran the European software group of an American process control company. And that was insight. We made the wrong choice for our next generation processor and had to retrench. So instead of going to work in Fort Lauderdale in Florida, I went to work for ICL in Bracknell. And I was recruited in by a very unusual woman, Hilary Cropper, who became a friend. And she was unusual in that she was really down to earth. She had three children and a very senior career. Uh, And she, she was nice. Well, was is the past tense because, unfortunately, she died quite young. So the first thing she plonked me into doing was... The company was highly dependent on a vital project called computerization of PAYE for the tax authorities in the UK. And ICA was about to get thrown off the project because a salesman had made claims that weren't true about the software. Yep. And the whole viability of the project was the ability to port the application, in fact, from the Canadian system. So, uh, Jill, uh, could you take a, a look at this? So, went and talked to the client and found out what the problem was. And there was something like 43 software interfaces that didn't work. So went around ICL and found out who owned the specs for each of the interfaces. Was the interface changeable? Yes, no. If not, what would be a, a route round? You know, Classic stuff. Went back, got to the client to work out what he could do in terms of modifying that software. Came back And so about six weeks after joining ICL, I called a meeting, including the MD and all the divisional directors to tell them what money they had to find in order to fix this, Mm. because it wasn't, you know, it wasn't squeezable out of budget. So anyway, ICL did not get thrown out of that project and uh, lived to fight again. The next thing that happened was um, I was asked to to start running a business inside ICL uh, to develop some software. I decided that in order to have an international business, we had to be on Unix. And that meant we had to get a new product line installed. And luckily, the management were behind me because I kept having corporate seagulls come in and say, you've got to do this. And I said, bar me or let me do it. But I was, I was scared stiff because I had people like marketing people and finance people and legal people and HR people and customer service people work for me. And I was a techie. And, you know, women are always a bit sort of nervous. Yeah. So um, I got the company to send me to Stanford to do their MBA course in two months. That They do It's called a senior executive program. And that was very high stress. But I found that my little clique consisted of a finance guy, a marketing guy and a legal guy. (laughs) (laughs) And between us, we could sort anything. So that was great. That gave me confidence. Now, the software business was really successful. We launched in 17 countries simultaneously, which was revolutionary for ICL, because normally ICL was focused on the UK, and then sort of rather grudgingly let the foreigners have some, some product. Two of the countries were Australia and New Zealand, and I spent quite a lot of time going and talking to clients in Australia and New Zealand, because they were sort of neutral and a really good test bed. Yep. I sometimes tell people I went to New Zealand for lunch. <laughs> Which is more or less right because I was in Sydney at the time, and we were launching we were launching office power at lunchtime, so I went to New Zealand for lunch so software, yes, really successful, built up a billion dollar turnover business inside four years, so brought into the center to do strategy didn 't know about strategy. we did some benchmarking, and we found that we had businesses inside the company that had totally different management dynamics. So we were able to benchmark them against, you know, not against each other, but against external comparators. And then there was the question, where was the IT industry going? And it was very confused. And this was really how I got into Foresight. We were based on the River Thames, more or less opposite the Shell House. Uh And Shell House contained the Scenarios team, which was then under Jed Davis, So I wangled an invitation to go and visit him. And they were tremendously helpful. And we set up a a team internally and we developed some scenarios. They were important to ICL because what they did, they articulated that a company in the IT industry could be small and nimble or else it could be big enough to sue. Hmm. And we were stuck in between, which is why we went and got the first Jiu-Jitsu But the real success that I'm most proud of in terms of that project was that about three years later, I was going to visit a client with an account manager. And he said, Jill, this client is quite interesting. They, the board is very deep sea. And that was the big enough to sue scenario. But the person we're talking to has the ear of the CEO and he's absolutely coral reef. So he, he can sell it for us if we can sell it to him. Hmm. And so our scenarios had been useful to people at the coalface in understanding what they were dealing with, and that was important because obviously everybody in ICL thought we were in a coral reef world, and all the literature was about coral reef type assumptions, which was bright and innovative and exciting. And most of our customers just wanted something that worked. Hmm. <laughs> so, so we had to rethink our marketing literature. <laughs> so while I was doing the strategy job at the centre. I also uh, talked to a journalist about the scenarios work, and he said, It sounds to me as though there's a book there, and I'm on the um, board of Wiley, so they commissioned the first scenario planning book. It was very good of ICR. They not only uh, helped by finding me a ghostwriter to help me get the first draft to go, but they didn't restrict anything I said, and so it's a warts and all book, which is something that. Um, you know, Harvard and other business schools really like. I was also very lucky in that ICL let me do a number of outreach things. I was on the court of the IT livery company, and we did a lot of outreach of IT into socially deprived areas and to schools. I was on the council of the British Computer Society uh, representing IT management. I chaired the conference board, Europe's Futures Council, and that was interesting because we started with about 40 people who were employed by large firms across Europe who were recognised as being the sort of foresight-ish person in their organisation. Within five years, most of them had either become consultants or they'd gone back into line roles Yeah, because it's an incredibly different, difficult balancing act being a futurist in a big organization. The tension is between sort of credibility, so you have to be out and about to get credibility, and inside you have to be spending lots of time with your line managers and stay empathetic with them. I remember going and talking to one line manager and saying, oh, I'd like to talk to you about scenarios for 2020. And he said, Jill, if it's 20 past eight tonight, keep talking. If it's 20 past eight tomorrow, come back tomorrow. So... Line managers are not always receptive. Uh, And, you know, I understand that. I also reinvented foxes and hedgehogs. I hadn't come across foxes and hedgehogs. But uh, in trying to introduce line managers to futurists and seeing their eyes (laughs) glaze over when a futurist talked about intelligent toothpaste, I went, "Okay, people are different. (laughs) That's when I was on the Economic and Social Research Council And we were setting up a management research centre in the UK. And uh, I got Michael Porter to do some research on what the lacks were in British management that needed research. And came up with a really interesting answer, which was that international management was totally, you know, internationally standard. But that at levels two and three. So that's not team leader, but the two levels just above that. Mm. British managers, there were twice as many of them, nearly. And they were underqualified compared with those in France and Germany. So it was a, a lack in our education system rather than a lack in research. That was, so that was a, a really interesting, uh-huh, something useful to have done. And the other thing was, of course, that ICL was a member of the Global Business Network, which meant that I was able to meet Peter Schwartz, who was quite mesmeric, very charismatic, And also Napier Collins, who ultimate networker and is still a friend. So really good time at ICL combining IT and foresight. But then it became clear that uh, we were going to be taken over by Fujitsu. And I could not face the flight to Tokyo as the most senior woman or head of strategy or whatever. No. So... I talked to the people at SAMI. I'd worked on them when we sponsored a project on Scenarios of Scotland and joined them as CEO. And we built up SAMI from the three of us up to 20. Uh, as you said in your introduction, worked globally. It might be interesting to talk briefly about the European Commission because working with them over a decade saw such an evolution in their understanding of how to use foresight. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a good message there. So the first project I was asked to work with was as part of a high-level expert group. The Commission had uh, assembled a group with about 15 different languages and about 17 different academic disciplines, or maybe vice versa, wow. in order to uh, assess how the European Commission's research arm might deal with nano bio info, cogno technologies because, of course, there are lots of social implications of working at a nano level in biological systems. And the commission was very cognizant of the fact that you know genetic modification had raised all sorts of alarms all over Europe. So the group met every month for a year. And for the first six months, it was a nightmare. Nobody could understand anything anybody else was saying because of the translation problems with the sort of esoteric things we were talking about between the different languages, the different academic disciplines. And so the organiser had sort of suspected this might happen and so had arranged to get us all marooned in a small conference centre in a park in Cambridge in the UK for three days to develop some scenarios for the future of Europe. And this we did. And it it really worked because this meant that when somebody was making a point about the research that was viable or not somebody else could say ah that's because you have scenario a view of the future of europe and what's europe for europe's for social cohesion you yes. think but actually we also have to think about the economic aspects and so there was a yes. mechanism for having that discussion and the report was very widely circulated and in fact a couple of years later i was visiting a fraunhofer institute and they said, oh, you're on this report. It, we're, we're guiding our research by it. So it's really nice to see that um, that sort of sweating with all those impossible conversations <laughs> actually turned out to have a viable output.
0: It is so important to give people a shared language to talk about the future, isn't it?
1: That's right, indeed. And then the second high-level group I was commissioned on to was something called the European Forum for Forward-Looking Activities. And this was brilliantly chaired by somebody I'd never met before, Professor Peter Pio, who in fact was one of the discoverers of Ebola and is now head of Ah. London School of Tropical Hygiene and Medicine. Great guy, also a super chairman, best chairman I've ever worked with. Under his chairmanship, what we were able to do was understand what problem they were wrestling with. And the Research and Innovation Division was wrestling with the fact that they'd been told foresight was important and they kept commissioning these studies. And so they had 30, 40, 50 studies piled up and the policymakers didn't know what to do as a result of it. Mm. And so one of the members of EFLA was from Finland and they'd had a similar problem with their politicians. And so they had developed a quadrant model which showed that There were policymakers who were about decision. And then there was a just do it quadrant. And then there was a horizon scanning quadrant. And then there was a sense-making quadrant. And it was this sense-making quadrant that the policymakers were missing. And so that was a real aha. And, in fact, Sammy uses the quadrant quite often with with our um, clients because, you know,
0: it works. Is that a quadrant of foresight or is there foresight in a different form in the other quadrants?
1: Well, one quadrant is what policymakers do, they make decisions. The next quadrant is just do it, you know, where the troops are out, you know, just doing stuff. The next quadrant is horizon scanning, where you're trying to make see what's happening in the outside world. And then if you like the quadrant, which is what most of us would think of as foresight, is the sense-making quadrant. Yep. But we didn't want to use the word foresight for that quadrant because they thought they were doing foresight by having all these studies.
0: Yeah, by doing all the horizon scanning, that, therefore we've done foresight.
1: Indeed, yeah. And so it was this sense-making, this link into the policy-making. Good. That was a really useful, but it took two or three years to get there. And, you know, during that time, Sammy did a number of other projects with the European Commission, you know, on horizon scanning, risk management, wild cards and so on. And we also did a conventional scenarios project with them, helping them to think about Horizon 2020, which was search program what the search programme and what were the priorities for the next stage. But then maybe the, one of the most interesting projects was one which, in fact, is not in the public domain as yet. And Wendy Schultz, who was on one of your previous podcasts, talked about it a bit. She talked about a game board, which was useful for helping policymakers from across the world understand where on a spectrum of possible attitudes to research and innovation they were and where they thought they might go to. And the big breakthrough there was that Wendy brought with her these little animals, And so, for instance, Australia was represented by, guess, a kangaroo. And these policymakers were able to have the discussion about the positioning of their region on the game board. Right. But also, not just the position, but what direction they were facing in. Were they going that direction or were they going the other direction? And it provided such an immediate metaphor. Clever. It was really great. And I'm not sure whether it's directly as a result Certainly, the introduction to the workshop where we used the game board was by president of the Commission. and after the workshop, a couple of months afterwards, it was announced that there was a new vice president for international institutions and foresight. Ah. And so foresight has now been recognized at the top level in the European Commission, and that is just such an interesting travel over 10 years, and being an observer at it was absolutely fascinating.
0: Thank you. Yeah, great story.
1: I thought I'd mention maybe three other projects just because they identified different aspects. One was uh, Malaysia, where they had been asked to develop new industries, and the group came up with the idea that actually Because Malaysia has always had rubber gloves from the rubber industry, why didn't they get into more fancy PPE? Because, you know, there were going to be pandemics, weren't there?
0: Yes, there were.
1: Yes, there were. (laughs) And so Malaysia is really relatively well positioned in the PPE market now.
0: That's good foresight.
1: Mm, Good foresight. Uh, Trisha and I, in fact, worked with Angel Trains, and they were going out for their next round of funding And the finance guy was a bit worried that they didn't have a story to tell. So we did the classic scenario project, interviewing people, workshops with the top team and so on. And it was one of the breakthrough moments when the CEO suddenly went, oh, shit, I understand now. We're not in the train business. We are in the risk business. And that meant, of course, that they were hiring the wrong people. They had the wrong management processes and so on. Because they were in the the train leasing business and train knowledge, expertise, engineering was not what they were about. They were actually about understanding what need there was, what demand there was and managing the risk. And then another project, which uh, was interesting in a different way, was for a big teaching hospital. It was divided into seven business units and the CEO wanted each of the business units to work through Some scenarios with us in order to think about how technology might change the way they worked. And so, five of the business units were run by classic medical consultants, and two were run by one was a radiographer and one was pathology. And it was chalk and cheese. None of the units run by medical units could get their minds around forward thinking, futures thinking, whereas the radiologists and the pathologists, oh, absolutely. And it was so black and white that I think it's a really useful reinforcement of the fact that there are always going to be times and places where it's not useful to try and do this stuff. While I was at SAMI, I wrote some books, Scenarios in Public Policy, I think it's still the only one, Scenarios in Marketing, which I wrote with uh, Laurie Young, and we got on so well that we wrote, We ran a series of events called blowing the cobwebs <laughs> off your mind because his clients and our clients were both going oh what's happening out there so we ran events at the Royal Society and Paul Mall and um, really successful working with Wendy Shorts and also Chris Yap unfortunately he died very suddenly and unexpectedly and we didn't have the heart to continue the series they were so much dependent on our, our chemistry also wrote a, a book called Here Be Dragons which people give as Christmas presents because it's Partly a novel about an organisation using foresight, and at the back it's got a handbook of tools. And that was with Tricia and uh, five other guys, and we all did chapters. It was actually at the um, a brainstorming meeting that I was holding as part of my handover uh, when I decided to leave Samian. And hand over to uh, Jonathan Blanchard Smith, who's now successfully running it. That uh, somebody said there's so much uncertainty out there that quite often I don't think scenarios are the right approach. I think that um, giving people something that is reasonably reasonably forecastable is something gives them something to hold on to, particularly if it's mega and likely to be swamping them. And so that contributed to the thinking. And so Tricia and I's book on megatrends really arose out of that. Handed over Sammy in 2017. And in fact, I've just stepped down from three years at Ethical Reading. Going to focus for a while on getting the next book out, which is Green Shoots, which is about how Gen Z and millennials are really different and how they have a chance of reshaping the world that we've messed up for them so before i finish this section on what is my story i thought i might just try three messages i wish that foresight people put more effort into trying to communicate to uh, you know audiences that need it scenarios are brilliant when they create images that uh, people can share and gives them insight in a shared language common way of thinking the third message is that i think there are some business schools still teaching you know scenario planning as a board activity that's a no-no these days it's it, that's to do with the time the pressures and also the focus of boards which is mostly on risk avoidance these days also you know coming back to the fact that um you know scenarios are really good when they give you an image to compare your current assumptions with and few people have strong assumptions about what's happening at the moment thanks Jill.
0: Question two, Jill, the one where I encourage the guests to talk about how they do or what they believe we should be doing as as futures people and, and foresight practitioners. What do you want to talk to the listeners about?
1: I've covered, I think, in a sort of snapshot way, why scenarios are powerful and how they can create images. But that's really well-worn. I'm really thinking much more these days about how foresight can be made accessible to young people and to people who need it when they want, when they need it. So, for instance, I used to commute by train a lot before lockdown, and people were often on their iPhones or their laptops. Either they were watching films or they were working. I thought, why don't we have foresight-type games that people play with? And so I know that there are some young people in the APF who are looking at that, And I think that's really, really important. And the other thing is, get it in the same way that I thought my physics education was really, really important. Teaching some foresight to young people in schools could be really, really important to help them think about what might be, what is going to be, what's certain, what they can do about it, and give people a sense of being in charge rather than being victims. Yes, that's one of the strong things about foresight. If you've got a view of it, you can decide what to do about it. That's really my two pleas. Gamification and other ways of making foresight available to the wider world and thinking strategically about how foresight can be helpful to school kids who are trying to face this strange world we're handing to them.
0: The experience of people trying to bring futures into education is it's it is a contested process because as you know there's a lot of competition to be a lot of things compete for teachers time
1: absolutely absolutely and so that's why it can't be you know a new curriculum item but you know bringing bring it into history or geography mm. or yeah. science for instance some thinking about that could be creative
0: I want to go to the third question of, so how do you see the emerging future? I mean, you know, what are the emerging futures that you're paying attention to? The thing that
1: Tricia and I have become really conscious of in writing Green Shoots is that the world has really changed in the last year. It's been illuminated by COVID. Uh, It was hidden before. Hmm. That we really are at the end of an era. If you think about individuals. The fact that they are likely to grow up in a single or two-sibling family with several grandparents still alive and maybe even great-grandparents, whereas a couple of generations ago they would have had three or four siblings and maybe meet one grandparent. Totally different dynamic. We're facing society where there are a lot of only children and only children don't have a lot of their social things made you know their social reflexes are conditioned by learning to live with siblings so different sorts of people different sorts of families organizations are different the fact that um, two-thirds of the world's organizations are family firms fits a society in which families had several children and there was usually one able to take over but in a world where families have one child or maybe two, it's less likely that there'll be a family member who is able and willing to take over. A great source of instability there. And the other fact of organizations, of course, is that they're hollowing out. There used to be a solid middle class of middle managers. Hmm. A lot of those are no longer there because their function has been replaced poorly, but has been replaced by IT or management system, and so you've got senior management and you've got floor-level people and very little in between. And that, again, is a source of instability because, you know, societies with middle classes are much more stable. Then community has developed a whole new sense with the connected world. Community used to be very much about geography, people next to you, and now it's very much about people like me. who who may not be local, and that changes the dynamics as well. Then we're thinking about government, and governments are based on nation-states. And nation-states are, again, focused on place, but money is mobile, Mm. and the ability to raise taxes is, you know, it's a bidding war out there.
0: You can only tax the small ones, you can't tax the big ones.
1: Indeed, indeed. The relationship, therefore, between citizens and the benefits of government is getting more tenuous because governments, though a lot of them are ignoring it at the moment, can't actually afford to pay for what citizens, "quotes expect, unquote. So we're seeing the breakdown of the Washington Consensus in all its branches, including the welfare state. And of course, we're seeing a complete change in the international balance from the US to China in terms of economic and therefore political heft. So it's, it's a different world. And so the new book is about the cusp of a new era. It's, it's set arguing that among all this change, people can make a difference, that there is a focus now on the big issues, climate change and public health and inequality, and that Gen Z and millennials are looking towards, are trying to make it happen. So cusp of the new era, reason to be hopeful.
0: What are the green shoots that you're seeing that says that those, those generations can create a momentum of change?
1: You can think about the, um, the Belarusian mass movement, which destabilised and changed the government. You can think about young women in mining, which is a cross-organisational organisation that is uh, changing the policies of mining companies towards health and despoilation of the environment. You can look at the fact that um, in a pretty depressed part of the UK, there's a big manufacturing company that can't hire apprentices because they think that manufacturing is dirty and they uh, have not given adequate answers to the questions about sustainability, dealing with waste, and so on. So there are just lots of small green shoots. And one of the things we're doing in the book is we call it snapshots, just gathering these up and giving illustrations because what works in one place
0: uh, will could work in another. Do you believe that the generations that are, that are holding onto power will acquiesce? to the pressure from those generations?
1: I think there's been a, a sea change. Uh, we, we use the Overton window as a um, metaphor. And I think that, you know, with China declaring it's going to go net zero by 2050, Japan, I think, 2060, Biden's making noises. You know, I think in relation to climate change and in relation to... Uh, public health, medical discovery, you know, antibiotic resistance and so on. I think there are big issues. And if there are big issues, it's easier in a way for people to put their arms around them and mobilise behind them. Mm. And so I think that Overton windows change, changed. And that, yes, of course, there will be lots of explicit and implicit resistance to change, and particularly in relation to climate change. Uh, you know if you look at where fossil fuel is embedded in our way of life it's just everywhere and so you know there's no quick answer i believe the um, the transition is, is happening so i've
0: got a question for Jill, the, um, the communication question, how do you describe what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do?
1: As I sort of explained at the beginning, I'm not a pure futurist. I'm a manager who has found this future stuff really important in elucidating our problems, in helping people to make decisions. And so people find, I think, that easier to relate to, easier relate to telling a story about you know, working with the Malaysians and their cultural differences between Malays and Indian and Chinese and how the discussions went and how the decisions were made and, you know, what the surprises were. It's talking about the process of decision-making and management rather than talking about foresight methods per se.
0: Mm.
1: And of course, mostly now, I, I really do well, particularly since lockdown, of course, but uh, I'm not intending to get, to um, go, go back to traipsing around the world after lockdown is off. And so what I do is giving talks over Zoom or podcasts or whatever and writing, and so that's a lot easier. So for me, it's not a big issue.
0: If you're giving advice to people that are starting out, what is the, what's the best way to make foresight useful to line managers?
1: You've got to find the right line manager. Think about foxes and hedgehogs.
0: Tedlock's work
1: is. It it actually comes from um, Greek myth. And so I I ran into problems because um, actually foxes in Muslim countries are thought to be dirty, whereas we were talking about foxes as being quick, looking around. Now, people are on a spectrum. There is absolutely no point in trying to do this stuff with hedgehogs. How do you recognise a fox versus a hedgehog? And just talking to them about the news. They'll have just different views about the news. Mm. And so you, you, you find allies and you shore up foxes because foxes in organisations quite often are pretty threatened. So you give them ammunition, you provide them with stories, you provide them with a sounding board, you help them plot the, the next couple of years, And, you know, I remember doing that with the um, new CEO of uh, Grant Thornton UK. It just took us a couple of hours. And we just plotted what she was going to be doing in terms of rethinking the culture and helping people understand the new world. And it was about a two year program and we just got it on a couple of whiteboards. And I needed obviously her to be the one who wanted to do it. She needed my experience of understanding how long these things took and what you introduced when. It's being able to be that sort of support that's needed. Going in as, here's the answer, McKinsey style, doesn't work.
0: So you really need to find the person who actually wants to use foresight.
1: No, no. You don't find a person who wants to use foresight because they don't know the term necessarily. What you do is you find a person who has a decision to make, and you assess whether foresight is going to be helpful. I mean, it may be that they just want a really bog standard benchmarking project. Mm-hmm. But if they, if they show signs of being interested when you start talking about some of your war stories, then you start exploring what form of foresight might be helpful to them.
0: We're at the last question. Is there something that you want to close on? A bit
1: dramatic, I think, but yes. So we were talking about dystopian futures and what might cause the world to collapse. And there's a classic list, including sort of nuclear war, famine, earthquakes. Pandemic. Pandemics, yes. I think there's another, which is probably more likely than any of those, and that's a catastrophic software failure. We did some work for the European Commission on software way back, and we were looking at the problems of embedded software and the testing characteristics and the testing regimes and the uh, compatibility, and I don't think any of that understanding is in a lot of the systems that are being pulled together to deal with smart cities, the software from various sources. They all have updates at different times. And we all know what happens when, say, Windows does an update. Mm. Nothing works for a few weeks. And you can't have part of London or Melbourne shut down for a few weeks because there's an incompatible upgrade. And I'm not singling out Microsoft by any means here. It's the fact that um, the, the profession has not developed a software architect role as somebody who has a checklist for how to make these things work.
0: Yes, it's not an open system that people can easily create interoperability between between parts of the system, is it?
1: Well, mostly the the systems are a bit complex and, you know, they have got interfaces that aren't particularly well documented or may change. And so something that depends on that interface may well just stop working.
0: Because that was the great fear of Y2K, wasn't it? It
1: Oh, yeah, it was a specific thing and the industry got behind it, and there was very little problem around Y2K. This is a more pervasive thing, and I really don't know where to start with it. I mean, Tricia and I have done a pamphleteer on it, which has got several thousand, I think, current count hits, but where to apply pressure, Where I, I really don't know. But at the moment, all I can do is talk about it.
0: If people wanted to find out more about just the nature of the risk? What might they start looking for and how might they start to to get a sense of it? Mm.
1: Well, that's difficult because there are, you know, websites around software disasters, but there hasn't been a sort of outreach from the profession into, you know, these are the things to look for in terms of, you know, your smart city and what might cause it to collapse.
0: (laughs) Thomas Homer Dixon, the Canadian... I suppose you'd call him a futurist. He talks about the nature of complex systems themselves is that complex systems are always, will eventually reach a point where they will break down because of their own inherent complexity.
1: Yeah, and it may well be that smart cities, you know, reach that limit.
0: So watch this space. Is that the advice you're giving to the listener?
1: (laughs) Put brain in gear and think what you might do about it, I think, rather than watch this space.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.